Welcome back to the Co-Mission podcast and to part two of our series from the Co-Mission Women's Day. What a joy to see over 500 women from around London gathered in worship and prayer. We had an encouraging time together, so we wanted to share these talks with you here. We were blessed to have Carolyn Lacey speak to us on the topic of real rest. This second talk was on living out rest in Christ. Enjoy. Hello everyone, my name is Abigail and I'm from Long Heath Baptist Church. And so we'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, and it's in your notes. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Well, we saw earlier that God promises rest and Christ has secured rest for us by entering into our restless world and leading us out. And if we turn from relying on our own good works and trust in him alone for salvation, we will enter his promised rest. But what does this mean for our day-to-day lives? We've acknowledged we live in this already and not yet tension of having received rest, but having yet to experience it fully. Christ has accomplished rest for us, and our future eternal rest is secure, but we're still waiting for it. And so what will it look like to live a life of rest now as we journey towards eternal rest on the new earth? How does the rest that Christ secures impact our daily lives? We've seen that we no longer try to hide our sin from God, and we no longer strive to earn his approval based on our own merits. We rest from works-based righteousness, but we don't hunker down and wait idly for eternity. No, just as God continues to work for us, we now live to serve him, not out of duty, not out of fear, but out of a heart that is truly at rest. We read earlier in verse 11 of Hebrews 4, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Another translation reads, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And that sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Strive to enter rest. But the striving isn't about trying to earn salvation for ourselves. Rather, it's choosing to believe and trust that the finished work of Christ has achieved it for us. And it involves striving because this is not a one-time choice. It's a choice we need to make every day for the rest of our lives. We must choose every day to surrender our pride, to accept that we won't achieve rest by our own efforts, 
and to trust that the finished work of Christ has achieved it for us. We must choose every day to stop striving to earn God's approval because we already have it and to live out the salvation he has won for us, not out of duty, but out of delight in him. I think this is what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2 when he says, continue to work out your salvation with trembling and fear, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. It is God who saves and God who works in us to fulfill his good purposes, but we play our part in working out salvation too. We humbly acknowledge that salvation is a work of grace, but we respond to grace by living out the salvation we've received. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying a similar thing here in chapter four. It's God who promises rest and Christ who secures rest for us, but we must accept his gift of rest and then live out of it. I think if we're honest, many of us, I think if we're honest, many of us believe that God has secured eternal rest for us through Christ, but that while we wait for eternity, we must exhaust ourselves trying to prove that he didn't make a mistake, trying to prove we deserve our place in his kingdom. This is not what real rest looks like. Rather, we can now live and love and serve joyfully as those who know the penalty of sin has been paid and there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Real rest sets us free to live a life of faith without fear of failure. And in the final verses of Hebrews 4, the author helps us see how this is possible. Turn again to verses 14 to 16 of Hebrews 4. We're going to see how the one who secures eternal rest for us enables us to live out of rest. And there are three things the author of Hebrews tells us about Jesus in these verses. And they make all the difference to how we live as we wait for his return and our perfect rest on the new earth. We see that Jesus intercedes for us, Jesus sympathizes with us, and Jesus provides for us. Firstly, Jesus intercedes for us so we can know freedom from guilt. Let's read verse 14 again. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. The original readers of Hebrews would have been more familiar with the idea of priesthood than we are. When they heard the words high priest, they would remember a room in the middle of the temple called the most holy place where God's presence dwelt. This place was so holy that the regular priest couldn't enter. But once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, one specially chosen, would enter the most holy place and make sacrifices of atonement for himself and for the people of God. The people needed an intercessor. They couldn't enter God's presence themselves because of their sin, and so the high priest acted on their behalf. But of course, even those chosen to serve as high priests, well, they were sinful themselves. That's why they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could intercede for the community. 
And while the most holy place was where God's presence dwelt on earth, really it was only a man-made structure. Couldn't fully contain the glory of God. But Jesus is a much greater high priest. He enters not a man-made building, but the real heavenly temple. He has ascended into heaven and represents us in God's immediate presence. He's a perfect, righteous intercessor. But he's also a greater high priest because he does this not once a year, but forever. The author of Hebrews is careful to remind his readers of Jesus' divinity by using the title Son of God. Jesus is God from from before time began. He's eternal and he lives forever to intercede for his people. That means that if you belong to God, he will never stop representing you before God. It means that when God the Father looks at you, he sees you clothed and cocooned in his son's righteousness. And that will never change. Well, how should this impact the way we live and love and serve each day? If you're like me, you probably find yourself regularly wrestling with guilt over things you should have done but didn't, shame over things you shouldn't have done but did, and despair that you've been a Christian for X years and you're still doing the same things over and over and over again. But remembering Jesus' role as high priest frees us from guilt and shame and despair. We still mess up, but he still lives to intercede for us. We keep falling back into sin, but he continues to clothe us in his perfect, unfading righteousness. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God made garments of animal skin for them, graciously clothed them, covering their nakedness and shame. It's a tender moment, I think. It really shows his compassionate heart towards them. But he's covered our shame and guilt in a far greater way, not with animal skins that will wear out and need to be replaced, but with garments of salvation and a robe of his righteousness. We may be tempted to hold on to our guilt and shame, but Jesus never does. God the Father has clothed us in his son's righteousness And Jesus, our great high priest, stands in God's presence, permanently testifying that we belong to him and interceding on our behalf every day. And that means we can love and serve others, knowing that when we get it wrong, which we often do, God doesn't hold it against us. It means we can nurture and develop the gifts and abilities he's given us, confident that our standing before him isn't affected by how successful or unsuccessful we are. It means we can rest peacefully in the knowledge that even our worst mistakes or failures can't erase the record of righteousness that has been credited to us because we're in Christ. And it means we don't need to minimize or excuse our sin out of fear that somehow it's too ugly to be forgiven. Rather, we take it to the one who is already interceding for us, claiming our righteousness on the basis of his own. We continue to fail him, but he never fails to intercede on our behalf. He hasn't made atonement for our sins and then kind of left us to ourselves. We saw earlier his work of atonement is finished 
but his work of interceding for us continues, and it will continue every day until we are finally home in God's perfect presence. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says, this intercessory work of Christ on our behalf it reveals something of his heart for his people. He writes, Christ's heart is a steady reality flowing through time. It isn't as if his heart throbbed for his people when he was on earth, but has dissipated now that he is in heaven. It's not that his heart was a flowing forth in a burst of mercy that took him all the way to the cross, but has now cooled down, settling back once more into indifference. His heart is as drawn to his people now as ever it was in his incarnate state. And the present manifestation of his heart for his people is his constant interceding on their behalf. He's agreeing with the author of Hebrews that Jesus is so for his people that he constantly intercedes on their behalf. He is so for you that he constantly intercedes for you. Whatever you do, whatever you fail to do, through your triumphs and successes, through your disasters and disappointments, when you're happy, when you're sad, when you're awake, when you're asleep, when you feel included, when you are alone, Whatever you're going through, good or bad, your great high priest is praying for you and he will not stop. You might wonder, well, why is this necessary? If we're already justified through his perfect life, death and resurrection, why does Jesus continue to pray for us? It's a good question. And the answer is that his ongoing work of intercession, well, it's a reflection of the full and complete work of atonement that he accomplished in his earthly ministry. His atonement accomplished our salvation and his intercession applies that work as moment by moment, day by day, Jesus declares his victory over sin and his once for all rescue for his precious people. Paul writes about this in Romans 8. He says in verses 33 and 34 of Romans 8, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. No one on earth or even in the heavenly realms can condemn those who belong to Christ. And Jesus declares that to be true with every single breath as he constantly pleads on our behalf. Not to a father who is reluctant to forgive, but to one who delights in his accomplished plan of salvation and the tender heart of his son towards his brothers and sisters. My children are 18 and 20. One of the things that delights me most as a parent is when I see or hear them showing tender care for one another. When my son puts his arms around his big sister, kisses her forehead and tells her that he loves her or that he's proud of her, it makes me so happy I could burst. When my daughter walks alongside her brother 
encouraging him to persevere when life is hard or faith is costly, it fills my heart with joy. I love watching them express their love and compassion towards each other. And I think that's how God the Father, in a far greater way, feels when he sees and hears his son revealing his heart for his brothers and sisters, for us, as he prays for us. Jesus, our brother, is in heaven right now interceding for us. And the author of Hebrews says in verse 14 that because our high priest has ascended into heaven, we should hold firmly to the faith we profess. He's saying, don't abandon the faith like the Israelites in the wilderness did, because you know that Jesus is alive and, in, and is praying for you, and there's nothing more precious. We can live out of rest rather than striving, because Jesus intercedes for us. The second truth I want us to see is this. Jesus sympathizes with us so we can know comfort in our struggles. If Jesus is the eternal son of God, can he really relate to you and me? Can he truly understand our daily struggle with weakness, our unrelenting sorrow at the brokenness we see and experience? and our persistent, wearying fight with sin and temptation. How can one so perfectly divine and glorious understand the fears and tears of broken, sinful people? We've seen we need a high priest who can enter heaven so that he can intercede for us. But we also need one who has walked on earth and experienced what we experience so he can sympathize with us. And this is what we have in Christ. Verse 15 tells us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus, the perfect son of God, entered fully into our humanity. He didn't simply inhabit a body, but he lived a fully human life. He experienced joy and sadness and pleasure and pain, hunger, thirst, weariness, disappointment, betrayal, grief, and loss. He didn't shield himself from the brokenness of this world, but he experienced everything that is painful and difficult, just as we do. Isaiah 53 tells us he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, he suffered every hardship we suffer and more because on the cross, God's righteous wrath was poured out on him in our place. But it's not only in our suffering that Jesus sympathizes with us. He was tempted by sin, just as we are. For 40 days in the wilderness when he was hungry and alone, he was tempted by Satan with physical comfort wealth and power, the things that we too are often most tempted by. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was tempted to avoid suffering. Even as he hung on the cross dying, he was tempted to get down, to abandon his mission and save himself. Jesus understands temptation because he experienced it too. Attempted in every way doesn't mean that Jesus experienced every individual temptation we do. 
There are temptations that are specific to women or to married people or to elderly people, and Jesus didn't experience those because he was none of those things. And he didn't experience the temptation we often feel after we've sinned, the temptation to cover our sin with lies or deception. Jesus didn't experience that because he never once sinned. But the broad categories of temptation that cover what we experience in this life, he too experienced. And he actually experienced them in greater ways than we do. We experience temptation only until the moment we give in. And then it ceases to be a struggle for us. We've already lost. But Jesus resisted every day for 33 years. He never once gave in. But he stood firm in the face of every temptation to disobey the perfect will of God. He didn't cave to peer pressure, even that of his family. He refused to give in to Satan's taunts, even when he was at his weakest, hungry, tired, alone. He really has been tempted just as we are, yet he didn't sin. And because he experienced and withstood temptation, he is able to sympathize fully with our weaknesses and help us when we are tempted. He understands what it is to feel weak and weary and the temptation to pursue comfort at all costs. He knows how it feels to be rejected and betrayed and the temptation to vindicate yourself or to hurt those who've hurt you. He knows grief and sorrow and even shame, not shame for his own sin because he was righteous, but on the cross, he suffered the shame of rejection, false accusation, public humiliation on our behalf. And so when we come to Jesus with our weaknesses, we come to one who is truly sympathetic and can offer the compassion and comfort we're looking for. He's not harsh or impatient or dismissive of our struggles. He knows and understands our struggles. And he can both comfort and help us in every difficult situation and in every temptation. A couple of chapters earlier, in chapter 2, verse 18, the author of Hebrews says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus understands our weaknesses and our temptations, and he has power to help us through them. The unavoidable reality of life in a fallen world is suffering. And Jesus embraced this reality for us. He became a fellow sufferer so that he could fully sympathize with us and offer help to us. And so here's my question. If Jesus fully sympathizes with our weaknesses, and if he is ready to comfort and help us in our struggles, why do we spend so much time and energy seeking sympathy and compassion from everyone else rather than running to him? Perhaps it's because deep down, we don't really believe these verses are true. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with John 1:14. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But the word not only became flesh, he remains flesh. 
There is a man reigning in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He is fully God, but he is also fully man. And his human body bears the scars of his earthly life and death, constant reminders of the salvation he accomplished for us through the cross. I have three scars on my face. Um, They're quite faint now. But when I see them, I remember why they're there. There's a tiny scar on my bottom lip, and it reminds me of Christmas morning when I was seven, running into my parents' room to show them my new doll and straight into a glass mirror. I've got a chickenpox scar on my right cheek, and it takes me back to the summer I turned 12, and I missed all the end-of-term celebrations because I was contagious. It reminds me of the weeks following that, visiting my dad in the ICU because his chickenpox spread to his lungs and brain and threatened to kill him. And when I catch a glimpse of the faint shadow on my chin, I remember running out of the countryside centre near our home in Worcester and tripping and falling into the path of oncoming traffic. I remember stumbling to the side of the road, um, covered in cuts and bruises, and calling my husband in tears to come and get me. My scars are a constant reminder of these experiences. And the scars on the body of our sympathetic high priest are a constant reminder that he took on flesh, entered into our weakness and suffering, and ultimately gave his life to redeem and restore us to himself. The author of Hebrews wants us to know that our every need for sympathy and comfort can be met in our great high priest. He really does understand what it's like to live in this broken world with physical pain, mental anguish, relational disappointment, spiritual temptation. He not only sees it all, but he experienced it too. And he is ready to comfort and help us as we come to him with it. Suffering and weakness should drive us to prayer. And we pray to and through one who knows just what it is to suffer. Jesus sympathizes with us so we can know comfort in our struggles. What does this comfort look like? An inexplicable sense of peace in our hearts when from a human perspective, things are chaotic and totally out of control. Joy in knowing we're not alone even when everyone else leaves because he never will. Quiet and calm assurance that although other people may disappoint us, reject us, or betray us in some way, he never will. The words of scripture piercing our hearts and awakening us to the glory of the gospel and the eternal hope that is ours because of him. And all this means that we are free to serve others with compassion and kindness because we daily experience the comfort of Christ ourselves. We can stop searching for comfort from those around us Rather, we're free to share with them the comfort that we receive from our sympathetic high priest. We can live out of rest rather than striving because Jesus sympathizes with us. And the last truth I want us to see in these verses is this. Jesus provides for us so we can be confident in prayer. When the Jewish high priest entered the most holy place, he did so with a sense of fear If he wasn't ceremonially clean, if there was a blemish on his skin or a wound that hadn't healed, well, he defiled God's holy place. 
and risked judgment. He was very aware of his sin and unworthiness and, and he relied on ritual cleansing to make him acceptable in God's sight. But the writer to the Hebrews makes it clear that there is now no fear in approaching God's heavenly throne. This is one of the great revelations of this letter. We can approach God with confidence. We still approach his throne with a right sense of his majesty and with awe. But we approach with confidence because we come to a throne of grace. In the most holy place, the um, Ark of the Covenant was was associated with a throne. Sometimes it was referred to as the mercy seat. As the high priest entered the most holy place to make atonement for the sins of the people, God was merciful to forgive He didn't treat them as their sins deserve. But in the heavenly temple, God's throne is now called a throne of grace. It is the place from which grace flows and flows and flows and just keeps on flowing. Not only is God merciful to forgive our past sins and mistakes, but he's gracious to meet our present and future needs. And he invites us, come, Draw near with confidence. I'm ready to shower you with mercy and grace. Our great high priest has not only entered heaven on our behalf, but he's blazed a trail for us to follow. We too can enter the heavenly throne room with confidence, not in ourselves, but in him. The author writes later in the letter, we read it earlier actually, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We don't enter on the basis of our own status or achievements, but on the basis of his. We draw near with confidence, with the full assurance that faith brings, a faith that looks outside of our own failures and weaknesses to Christ's perfection and strength. We don't stop to worry, am I worthy to approach God's throne? but we remind ourselves joyfully, Christ is worthy and he has entered ahead of us, making the way open for us to come to. And so we approach the throne confidently. And when we stop praying, we miss out on opportunities to experience and delight in God's mercy and grace towards us. Perhaps some of the original readers of this letter had allowed suffering or persecution to pull them away from God rather than closer to him through prayer. Perhaps you've done that too. Have trials or suffering or disappointments shaken your confidence in approaching the throne of grace? The author of Hebrews reminds us to let our hardships pull us to the Lord and not away from him. Jesus, our great high priest, stands ready to provide all we need. He offers mercy for our sin and grace for our struggle. When life is hard or overwhelming, we don't need to tough it out. We can come confidently, boldly, expectantly to the one who is ready to provide what we most need. His mercy is ever-flowing. His grace is inexhaustible. And that means we can live lives of extravagant love and joyful service, relying on his grace to equip and sustain us every day, confident that he will be merciful to forgive our sins and that his limitless grace will be sufficient for us in our times of weakness 
It is possible for you and I to live a life of rest, even amid the trouble and turmoil of this world, because we have a high priest in heaven. Jesus intercedes for us, and so we can know freedom from guilt. Jesus sympathizes with us, so we can know comfort in our struggles. And Jesus provides for us, so we can be confident in prayer. When 84-year-old Mary Grams lost her engagement ring in 2004, she never thought she'd see it again. It fell off her finger while she was pulling weeds on her family farm. It disappeared into the soil. Mary searched on her hands and knees for days and weeks and months, but she never found her ring. In the end, assuming it had been destroyed when the ground was rototilled, she gave up her search and bought herself a replacement. But 13 years later, when her daughter-in-law was digging up vegetables for supper, Mary's long-lost ring appeared, wrapped around a carrot. <laughs> it had been in the garden all along, right beneath her fingers. She despaired of ever finding it. She'd given up hope and settled for a substitution. But it was there all along. Perhaps you've despaired of finding rest in this life, or perhaps you're still frantically searching in all the wrong places. The good news from Hebrews 4 is that you don't need to despair and you don't need to strive. God offers true, lasting rest, real rest, and it is found in Christ. All we need to do is look to him and enter into what is already ours. Thanks for listening to this series from the Commission Women's Day. We hope you found it encouraging and a good reminder to find real rest in Jesus in a busy city. A huge thanks to all the women who helped make this event such a great day. Stay tuned for the next episode.